proceed to God's word and the preaching, although, I mean, we've already heard enough. We could go way filled with what we've already heard. But we have child care, I believe, for up to four years old. I think so. Some pe- somebody is reacting to that announcement. Um, so that goes back down the hallway if anybody needs that. Uh, if you're staying here, though, we are in the book of Hebrews in the Bible. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the letter to the Hebrews. That's where we've been for some time now. So this letter was written to encourage Christians about the greatness of Jesus Christ and all the amazing things that are true for those who put their trust in Him. So in this letter, we hear about a Savior in whom we have forgiveness of sin as He offers His own life up in payment for our wrongdoing and intercedes for us before God the Father. In this letter, we've learned about the one who gives us peace with God, access to His throne of grace every day of our lives. We can always receive from Him every day. And then here in this letter, we learn about that there is life after death as a guarantee for those who know Christ. Jesus Christ has passed through the heavens. He sits at the throne of God. He's going to return again, and He's going to bring with Him all those who are eagerly awaiting for His return. So all these things are in the letter of Hebrews, and it's punctuated with challenges and warnings every once in a while. Um, that these Christians should, should believe these things, lean into them, and stay the course. Don't give up on the Christian life, uh, which they were tempted to do because they were experiencing troubles in the world, the kind of troubles that are just natural to everybody, uh, no matter who they are, but also troubles that were specific to being a Christian. They were also facing some opposition, resistance, persecution, for their faith. And so there was this temptation in them to call it quits. They're they're wondering, is this true? Is it worth it? And that very much describes our situation in the church today. Um, Christianity doesn't have the cultural approval that it used to enjoy, and it's fractured. Uh, The church at, at large is fractured. In many cases, there's bad behavior and there's a lot of people reevaluating Christianity. Is it true? Is it worth it? Should I stick it out or not? Well, Hebrews reminds us that it is true, that it is worth it. As the psalmist said in Psalm 23:3, I think I have that reference wrong, but somewhere in the Psalms, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. That's the message of Hebrews in a nutshell. Stick it out with Jesus because he is truly great and he's worth following. So in light of all that, 12 chapters of that, we now get to chapter 13, which is about application. So these things being true, how then shall we live? What does it look like now? What do I do next? That's what chapter 13 is about. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8 this morning and the rest of the chapter in the next two weeks. So let's open God's Word together. Let's read that, and then we'll pray for the Lord to help us receive it and understand it. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you transform people's lives. You show us your greatness and your glory, and we change one degree of glory to another into your image. You're removing sin from us. You're putting in us your beautiful qualities. And this, this list that we just read is a, is a description of some of the ways that you're doing that, and we ask that you help us. To, to hear these exhortations, not with a load of guilt, but with, with a, a motivation to pursue and to enjoy all that you have brought into this world to change. We just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, well, we read six exhortations in that eight verses. Six attitudes and actions that people will take on as they're being renovated by God's grace through Jesus Christ. So we're going to touch on all of them, and we'll take more time with some than others. But whenever you go through a list like this, you know, here, do this, now do this, don't do that, what can happen after you go through that is you can start to feel this weight, this overwhelming, like, man, that's like six more things to do uh, on my task list. <laughs> and they're all big. And there's like 10 more coming, you know, when we finish the rest of the chapter. Uh, and, and you can start to feel weighty, like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do all this? I'm so far away from it. So probably a wise strategy as you're listening to all these is remember that none of these things that are commanded here are things that we do to become approved by God. They're things that people do who are already approved by God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So they come out of our acceptance from God. They don't earn it. So that reduces some of the weightiness of it right there. Um, God has already blessed us through Jesus Christ if our faith is in him. So this is how we now walk that out. There are attitudes and actions that really belong to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Uh, whose eyes we are to have fixed on. We're supposed to be fixed on Him. So listen to these, and maybe one or two is the one that the Holy Spirit is going to put His finger on in your life. And you'll say, aha, He's getting my attention there. So let's think about it that way as we go through this list. The first thing believers do who trust in Christ is this. We let brotherly love continue. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Continue, or as Romans 12.10 puts it, love one another with brotherly affection. This is how believers 
in the church are to treat each other. Scripture calls us brothers and sisters because we are people who, through faith in Christ, are adopted by God as His children. And so that makes us related in a spiritual way, but in a real way. Uh, We're family now. We can call each other brother or sister because of what God has done for us. And this says, let that brotherly love continue. So we love each other like family because that's what we are in Christ. Not a dysfunctional family, though that is certainly our experience in this world, right? We all have dysfunction, but to love each other like family in the way that God intended it, which is that we're for each other. We are genuinely concerned for one another. We're going to hang in there even when we have disagreements, even when we sin against each other. We're going to like work through it because that's what family does. That's what this is saying. Let that continue. Now, why does brotherly love flow from our trust in Christ? Remember, this is an application from 12 chapters of Hebrews, all focusing on the greatness of Jesus. Why would let brotherly love continue be the first thing on his mind in terms of application? How does that follow from this look at Jesus? Well, Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, Love one another just as I have loved you. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for one another is the distinguishing mark of following Jesus. It proves that you're one of his disciples because he loved us first. Just as I have loved you, now go do that with one another. It's a distinguishing mark. It it would be the natural thing that we would do if we were really understanding and experiencing his love for us, demonstrated on the cross. So that's why I think that that comes first. He says, let it continue. I love how realistic the scriptures are about life because it says, let brotherly love continue, meaning We are prone to stop. (laughs) It doesn't continue automatically, naturally. It's something that we have to actually work at. That's realistic, (laughs) I think, about, about who we are. But why would they be tempted to stop? Well, in the immediate context of Hebrews, it's probably the troubles that are facing them, the troubles of the world and the opposition to their faith. And what's the natural reaction when you feel threatened, when you feel like you're in trouble? Well, I can think of two two different reactions. One is we either withdraw into our own world and isolate ourselves from all the trouble, or we, we get angry and we rebel and we fight against it and we try and get rid of it, right? Flight or fight response, I think they call that. We tend to have those kinds of reactions to trouble. The loser in either one of those reactions, though, is brotherly love. We can get inwardly focused or we could be outwardly offensive. And either way, it's not brotherly love anymore. What's lost is moving toward other people, toward people in problems with genuine love, self-sacrifice, patience, mercy, just as our Lord taught us through his life. The Lord wants us to continue in brotherly love because we're family, we stick together, we help each other finish this Christian race, this race till the end of our life.
So that's exhortation number one. Two more follow it, which actually are specific ways we can exercise and demonstrate brotherly love. Like, let's get practical. What does that actually look like? So here's the second exhortation. It's to show hospitality. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So hospitality, what is that? One definition says it's the friendly and generous reception and entertainment of guests, visitors, or strangers. So when we say so-and-so is known for their hospitality, I mean, what, what comes to your mind? Food, I heard, I heard food comes to mind. Uh, my grandma is who I think of. Like, she's gone now. But like when I was a kid, even when I was an adult, um, she lived several hours away, and we'd start this drive to go there for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever. And here's what I knew was going to happen once we got there. She would be there at the front door, her arms open wide, give us a big hug. You'd enter the house, there's the smell of food. You knew it was going to be amazing. Um, there was a bed for you. There was the, the, the familiar sounds of the creaking wood floor. Hospitality has this picture of welcome that this is a refuge. You and me for the next hour or two, this is a refuge from the craziness of the world. This is where we can now be one-on-one -on -one and I'm going to take an interest in you and I'm going to serve you somehow and, and make you feel a moment of enjoyment and acceptance and love. That's really the spirit of hospitality. It involves food. It may involve somebody staying at your house for a while. But it's that welcome that we extend to one another in a practical way. That's the spirit of it all, and it's, it's a reflection of Christ. Romans 15, 7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So this is what we do for one another. We do it for people that we know. In Acts 2, they were breaking bread in each other's homes. But it also says we do this for strangers, people we don't know. Now, there's natural obstacles to having hospitality. I think you probably know what they are. Um, it's easy to, to, to neglect it. Uh, here's some of the reasons we might neglect it. Uh, it costs you something in time, Right? If you're going to have somebody over for dinner, now you're setting apart that night for them. You were going to do something else. So it is a, is a, there's a cost in time, a sacrifice that's made. costs you money. Probably there's more food involved here. Uh, you're going to have to buy more. It also means letting go, letting go of the idol of privacy and self-interest. You let somebody else invade your space, and you focus on them for a while instead of on yourself. And like we tend towards just selfishness and inwardness, and this says, no, no, go outward, turn outward to the other person around you, to the stranger. I was feeling those things when I was preparing this message this week. Uh, Mary's been asking me for a long time, so when are we going to have our neighbors over <laughs> So there's this uh, couple from Iraq uh, across the street. We've had them over once. We've been over to their house once. And she's like, when are we going to do that again? And I'm like, ah, 
Jesus, we're so busy right now. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Can you ask me again later? You know, well, here, even as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, isn't that every day, though? Isn't that every week of our life? Is anybody not doing anything? <laughs> we are filling our calendars up with something, even if it's sleeping in until noon every day. We are making choices about what's going to be in my week. Well, this text says, don't neglect hospitality to strangers when you're thinking about what your schedule is going to have in it, because this is important. This is Christ-like welcome. And there's actually an incentive here for doing it. Uh, it says that through hospitality, some have entertained angels unaware. Angels unaware. Very interesting. Does that really happen? <laughs> I think it probably is true in both a literal sense and a figurative sense. You might remember, if you've read the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham had three visitors. They came out of nowhere, um, and they're angels. If you read through the whole story, they were angels. He probably didn't know it at first. He just saw three people. He said to them, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So that's hospitality. And he's doing it with three angels. So that's a literal sense. He entertained angels. I don't see why that couldn't still happen. Angels have been around since... Forever, not forever. Well, since the creation, at least. They're still around. It could happen, right? But I think there's also a figurative sense here to this word angels. In chapter 1, angels are described as ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So they're, they're here for our good, right? They're, they're, they somehow serve us in ways that are good for us. Well, some people who are not angels can have that same effect on us when we interact with them. They bless you more than you bless them. You feel refreshed at having had them in your home. Uh, you might know what I mean. There are times where you might have somebody over and you don't want the evening to end because you're laughing, the conversation is rich, it's edifying, uh, the food is good, but it's the people. It's, it's, it's what you're getting. I'm being built up. My faith is being strengthened by this conversation. Uh, have you ever had something like that in your life? Well, I think that's sort of at least figuratively the same thing. You, God has put that person into your life to bless you, to encourage you, to strengthen you in the faith. But it wouldn't happen if you didn't take that step forward and, and invite that stranger in, that person that you don't know so well, and, and then you get that from, from them. That can happen. You might be blessed more than you're blessing them. Whatever sacrifices you made are more than made up for, but what you're receiving in return through hospitality, that, that can definitely happen. I've experienced it too. So hospitality, that's the second one. Here's the third exhortation, another expression of love. Summarize it this way, help those who suffer. Help those who suffer. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison 
as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So the people who are in mind here that are in prison or that are mistreated are fellow believers because it says you also are in the body, uh, meaning the body of Christ, the church. These imprisoned or mistreated people are in the body of Christ and you also are in the body of Christ. So these are fellow believers who are suffering probably because they're persecuted for righteousness' sake, like Jesus said his followers would do in the Sermon on the Mount. They're faithful to Christ, and it got them into trouble. And the exhortation is, remember them as though in prison with them. So this is about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. Uh, If I were in prison, if I were being mistreated, what would I need? That's the remembering. Definitely I would need encouragement. Probably I would need material goods. Remembering them means providing these kinds of things for them. It's it's this heart towards the sufferer. That's brotherly love on display. John says in his first letter, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? When brotherly love continues, it looks like having on your heart fellow believers who are suffering. Because you're in the body with them. You're joined, you and them. What, if they suffer, you suffer. There's a connection there. Like the other commands, these, there are obstacles to doing this. Reasons that we might not want to get involved with or associate with those who are in prison or mistreated. Um, I think the one that comes to my mind is guilt by association. There's a reason that people are in prison or mistreated. Somebody doesn't like them. Someone thinks they need to be punished. And if you associate with them, if you encourage them, if you provide for them, the stigma that is attached to them may attach to you. You might be next in line for mistreatment. And so there can be a temptation to not remember those who are suffering for righteousness' sake, to distance yourself from believers who seem to be engaged in all sorts of things that are controversy, right? Who are being attacked. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I'm just going to stay away. Paul experienced that in his letter from prison to Timothy. He said, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Because Paul is a hot potato. He's in prison after all. You don't want to go near a guy like that. You don't want to end up where he is. He said, they all deserted me. Jesus experienced the same thing. In the Garden of Gethsemane, all the disciples ran away when they came to arrest Jesus. They're like, I'm out of here. This isn't what I signed up for. And they all ran away. There is a potential cost in associating with fellow believers who are being mistreated. But the Lord calls us to be like this guy named Onesiphorus, of whom Paul said, He often refreshed me. 
and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. What a guy. That's the only thing we know about this guy. He refreshed Paul. He wasn't ashamed. This guy's in prison. I'm going to go. I'm going to bring him some food. I'm going to bring him the scriptures or whatever he needs. Like, I'm not ashamed to be associated with this man who is standing for Christ. And that's what we're called to be like. <clears throat> Here's one possible application of this in our current environment because we probably don't know a ton of people in prison ourselves. We do know people who are mistreated believers who are mistreated, one possible application is how we deal with fellow believers who are accused of wrongdoing, but it isn't proven. They're getting torched online. They're the bad guy, but is it really true? What's our attitude towards a person like that? Now, to be sure, in the church, there's a lot of unrighteousness in the church at large. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens. I was reading about one of the denominations where confirmed cases of sexual abuse by the hundreds and people put in jail for it and the whole thing. Like, bad stuff happens in the church at large. Um, not all of the accusations are untrue. There are some cringeworthy things <laughs> that go on. There's no reason to defend those things. But don't forget that the devil is also real. He is called in Revelation 12.10, the accuser of our brothers. And in John 10.10, the thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And that includes unjustly destroying the reputations of godly men and women with accusations that are not proven. It really discourages me when I see how quickly the church sometimes just writes people off who just because they were accused of something in the news, well, they must be, they must be true. But that is unjust. That is what the accuser of the brethren does, but not Jesus Christ, our advocate. In 1 John chapter 1, I think, or 2, he's our advocate. He's the one who stands before God before us and says, yeah, they're sinners, but they're mine. <laughs> they're yours. He's on our side, but so quickly the church turns against its own because of an accusation that's unproven. It isn't right. That's not the attitude of this, of this passage. Remember them as if you were them. You might be the next one who's a, the subjects of all the accusations. But are they true? Don't forget the devil is real. Let's resist getting pulled into the way the world handles things. Let's do it the way Isaiah 11, 3 and 4 says about Jesus. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge. We will not assume somebody's guilty until that's proven to be true. Meanwhile, we will believe the best about them. We will be there for them. We will help them because they also are in the body. That's our posture, I think. That's, I think, an application from this. Next exhortation. <clears throat> if you're soaking in the goodness of Christ, 
you will honor marriage. You will honor marriage. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So marriage is to be held in honor. Marriage, the institution, not just marriages, but marriage itself, must be held in honor because this is an institution that was created by God in the beginning of humanity. Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's marriage. One man becoming one flesh with one woman in a lifelong covenant relationship and sexual intimacy reserved for that union. That's God's design. That's what marriage is. And this passage says, let it be held in honor. God made this. This is good. It shouldn't be dishonored in any way by defiling it, by defiling the marriage bed, which means by not keeping sexual intimacy to this union. So the, the exhortation here is don't, don't have any sexual relations outside of husband-wife marital intimacy. Everything outside of that is outside the bounds, outside of God's design. Things like fantasizing, sexual encounters through porn, sex between unmarried people, sex with someone outside of your marriage, sex with someone of the same gender. These things are outside the bounds of God's design. They all dishonor marriage. Now, why does this topic come up at the end of Hebrews? Remember, this isn't just randomly thrown in here uh, as a reminder to be pure. This is an application of knowing the greatness of Jesus Christ. We know from Ephesians 5 that marriage is to be the picture of the union between Christ and believers. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is this picture of this relationship between Christ and the church. He gave himself up for us, dying on the cross for his bride, the church. It's a, it's a self-sacrificial love. And then the bride respects, returns love, returns fidelity to that Savior, to that husband. And that's what marriages are supposed to picture. That's, what, that's what's being preserved when we honor marriage. It's a preservation of this, this parable of the gospel. That's what makes it fall here in Hebrews. This is what we do if we are feasting on Christ and we know Him and His love for us, we make it real and visible in our marriages. <clears throat> I know we're in Pride Month right now. That's our culture's designated time to celebrate a broad variety of sexual activity. Now, God calls us to love our LGBT neighbors. They are created in the image of God. And that gives everyone inherent dignity and value. And that is the reason that we extend love. But we do not celebrate 
variety in sexual adventures, <laughs> other options. We only celebrate God's design, which is one man, one woman in a marital union for life, and sex is reserved for that union. That's what we celebrate. That's, if we're going to honor marriage, that's what we have to celebrate, not something else. <clears throat> that's controversial in our day, but not in the Bible. And let's not forget the text also says there's consequences for not honoring marriage. It says God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There is a consequence to dishonoring marriage through sexual activity outside of God's design. Nobody walks away unharmed is the way I would say it. There are consequences. Either they'll be in this life in things like crushing guilt and regret divorce, transmitted diseases, and so forth, or it will be in the judgment after death if one dies without trusting in Christ as Savior. Either way, nobody wins by dishonoring marriage. It's so much better. And it's consistent with knowing God's grace to let marriage be held in honor among all and do it His way. That's where thriving is. Here's the next thing we do as we are being renovated by the grace of God. We cultivate contentment. This is verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, this is not saying that it's a sin to be rich, that having money is bad. It doesn't say, keep your life free from money, but from the love of money. Money itself is neither good or bad. It's just a resource that we use to buy things and pay for stuff. That's not bad in itself, but the love of money. Now that is bad because that is putting your hope and your trust and your satisfaction in something other than God. It's like the parable of the rich man that Jesus told. There's this guy who said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So this is the guy who looks at his large bank account and that's what gives him this sense of security. That's what makes him happy. Not Christ. Not the security and the eternal happiness, which are found only in a relationship with God. That's what it looks like to love money. And Jesus said in Luke 16, you cannot serve God and money. Serve is a worship word. Loving money is worshiping an idol of financial security. If you need a ton of money to feel safe in this world, then that is what's going to control you. You will do everything possible to get it, to get more of it, to make sure you have enough. It's not just being responsible, it's this pursuit. I have to have this or I can't be secure, I can't be happy. I can't be at peace. And it will dictate all of your decisions in life because you'll always feel like you can't have peace until you see that you have enough. That's worship. That's a worshiping an idol of money. 
Now again, why is this in here? Why is this an application of knowing the greatness of Christ? Well, the text itself tells us that those who know Christ already have security. God made a promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That means I won't abandon you. I won't leave you to yourselves to figure out everything in life, to keep your life. I'm going to be involved. It isn't just you against the stock market. It isn't just you trying to figure out how to live in Denver in an inflation and or maybe a recession. It's not just up to you. I'm here. I'm bigger than that. I own this world. <laughs> and you are my son. You are my daughter. And I won't forsake you. That's where security comes in. That's where contentment comes in. That's how I can release my, my desire to get more and to try and, you know, preserve myself. Yes, be responsible, but you know it's a different thing, right? This is talking about fear. There's no reason to fear what man can do to you. We're supposed to confidently say that. Why? Because he's never going to leave me or forsake me. That's why we don't have to have fear. God won't forsake his people. I've told the story about how God provided for our family when I quit my well-paying job with great insurance <laughs> to become a pastor to get no money and no insurance. And God provided for us. So I won't tell the whole story again because a lot of you have already heard it. But I just want to say God fulfilled his promise. That looked like, a, you know, it's either going to work or not. You know, we're either going to, God's either going to provide, this promise is either true or we're dead. Like, that was the options. And God, His promise is true. I will provide for you. Doesn't mean we won't suffer. Doesn't mean we don't sometimes go hungry. Doesn't mean we get into situations where we don't have enough of the things that we think we got to have. And yet, God works his way. He's, he's doing something in our life. He has a purpose for it. He's a loving father. He knows what he's going to allow as far as a challenge and when he's going to bring in the bounty. He's got that all figured out. We just trust him and we keep crying out to him, give us this day our daily bread. And he will. That's how we can be content. We cultivate it though. We have to cultivate it by remembering these promises of God. We don't have to fear if we do that. Last exhortation. Imitate the faith of godly leaders. Verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So this is talking about leaders in the church who taught the scriptures. They modeled the life of faith but they're no longer present with them. It says, it's all past tense. They spoke, they're not still speaking. So they're not around anymore, but remember them. We don't know why they're not around. Maybe it was martyrdom. Maybe they were in prison. Maybe they just moved on. Maybe they were like Paul. He planted churches and he'd keep them stable for a year and a half or so, and then he'd move on somewhere. But we don't know why they're not there, but they're not there. But one thing that they left was this memory of two things, they spoke the word of God and they lived a life of faith. And it says, remember that and imitate their faith. Live confidently in Christ and in the promises of God like they did. 
this gives the believers a more recent and more personal list of people to imitate than those in chapter 11. So chapter 11 has this long record of all these amazing saints from of old, from ancient times. You got Moses in there, you got Abraham, you got Sarah. Um, and, you know, that's long time ago, inspiring, yes, want to know that, need to know that. But, like, this is talking about what about the people that you actually know <laughs> in your generation? You also have some examples of people who are in your situation. They live where you live. They're experiencing your time of life. And God still preserved them. They, they made it through. They also serve as an example to imitate, to help you, to give you strength. One of the leaders that spoke the word of God to me and who finished the race well was Jerry Bridges. Dan, Dan uh, referred to him, quoted him in communion this morning. So Jerry passed away six years ago, um, but he was an influence in my life for over 30 years um, when I was in college was when the first time I, I heard him speak. Um, then later on when we were married, he spoke in our church back in Minnesota. Um, then later on when I went to pastor's college, he was my teacher for a week. Um, and that week was transformational for my life. Uh, there's not many things that I would say were life-changing in my life, but this was genuinely one of them. I came into the pastor's college with this ongoing self-loathing and burden of condemnation in my soul, even though I'd been a Christian for like 15, 20 years or something like that. Um, I had this burden always. Like I was just so aware of how my sin, and I couldn't get rid of the guilt. I kept, I kept feeling like, man, I got to do better. I got to do better. Well, during that week with Jerry Bridges, he taught me that I'm not made right by doing more obedience. I'm made right by Jesus' obedience. <laughs> I receive his perfect record by faith, so stop it. Stop trying to get better to get rid of your guilt. It'll never work. Your guilt is only taken care of by Jesus dying in your place. And if you got that, then you're good. No condemnation, as Dan reminded us this morning. For those who are in Christ Jesus, that means there's no, there's no judgment hanging over your head. Uh, it's the, the, it's not, God's not going to do it. He's already carried out his wrath on Jesus. So Jerry taught me that. I felt freed up. My kids noticed I was a different person. I wasn't so grumpy. Uh, I, wasn't, you know, I was actually having fun once in a while. You know, it, was, it was a good thing. <laughs> he was one who spoke the word of God to me. His life was worth imitation. I went to his memorial service in Colorado Springs. room was filled with hundreds of gray-haired people that he had touched with his life. And I thought, wow, that's the outcome of his life. That's the way I want to go out. Teach the gospel till you drop, because he was in his 80s when he finally died, and he was still traveling, still preaching, still teaching. He's in his 80s. Do it. Preach till you drop. Uh, make a difference in people's lives, and then enter into your reward. Good story. I like that. That's what I'm going to do. But you've probably got people in your life that you can do that with, people that you know that are in some way, their faith inspires you, helps you to go on because they are in the same world you are. And if they can make it, maybe I can make it. Maybe God is big enough to do it. Um, and if you don't have anybody like that in your life, pick up a biography. I think that's one of my favorite books to read outside the Bible is biographies, especially of the saints, um, just their, their lives are inspiring. You know, pick up something on Amy Carmichael or Elizabeth Elliot or 
you know, one of your other favorites, uh, R.C. Sproul's got a good biography. You're really encouraged by that one. Just pick those books up. It inspires you. It helps you. Imitate their faith. That's the exhortation here. But, you know, it doesn't stop with our leaders, the people that spoke the Word of God to us. Actually, the leader and mentor that we should go to as our final and always go to is Jesus Christ himself. And that's what verse 8 is talking about. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This comes right on the heels of about the godly leaders. Well, you know, the, the important one is, you know who the founder and perfecter of our faith is? Jesus Christ. And he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. As good as our godly leaders are, they don't live forever. They can't be the hope of our salvation. They are also gone. But, but Jesus is never gone. He is always here. He is our true Savior. So don't idolize our leaders. Worship Christ. The yesterday of the past, he died on the cross for our sins. The present of today, his blood intercedes for us before the throne of God. In the future of forever, he is not going to return to deal with our forgiven sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. These are the themes in the letter to the Hebrews. These are the unchanging truths about Christ. So let's imitate godly examples, but let's keep front and center the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Let's read his book more than all the other books. <laughs> let's take on his mind and heart. Let me just close with this. Isn't it amazing what God has for us in Christ? Isn't this community that he is building the most beautiful thing you can imagine? Brotherly love, hospitality, sympathy for suffering, honorable marriages, contentment, examples of faith worthy of imitation, all of this flowing out of our relationship with Jesus. Doesn't that sound good to you? That's such a refreshing alternative to the chaos to the anger, the fear, the cold-heartedness that we are so used to experiencing in the world. But we don't have to experience that in God's community because He's given us His Holy Spirit and His promises and forgiveness so that we can be this new community that actually acts this way. So let's do it. Let's, let's cooperate with God's intention for us. And let's do these things for one another. It is worth it. It is totally worth going after and preserving these things. And we'll have two more weeks to hear about more things. But let me just pray. Father, I thank you for everyone in this room here that you brought to hear from you. This is your love for them going out to show us Jesus in all of His glory and to show us the way of life that flows from knowing and loving Him. What a mercy we've received this morning that You have opened up Your Scriptures to us. And we ask for eyes to see, hearts to receive, and to go from here rejoicing and hopeful because You won't, forget, you won't forsake Your people. You won't do it. You are with us always to the end of the age. We thank You for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Sing of the one who's the same yesterday, today.